Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Today we continue our studies of Beit HaBechira, God's chosen home. We're moving inwards, getting a little bit closer to the epicenter of holiness. Of course, that's the holy of holies, but there's a number of sacred spaces that precede the holy of holies. And as we move in from the chel, the rampart of sorts, that surrounded or encircled the Beit HaMikdash compound, in Halacha Yud Zayin, the 17th Halacha of the 7th chapter of Hilchas Beis HaBechira, the Rambam takes us into the next step up in sanctity. Ezrat Hanashim, the woman's section or courtyard, Mikudeshet Min was necessarily considered to be a step up in holiness from the rampart areas. Why was it called Ezrat Nashim? Is there actually a place in the Beit HaMikdash where women went and a place where men went? Isn't that a construct of the 18th century rabbis in Eastern Europe or something? <laughs> no, it actually isn't. We have been praying or engaging in services separately ever since the days of, you guessed it, the Beit HaMikdash. So why was it called Ezrat Nashim? With a woman in the outer courtyard and the men in the inner courtyard? I mean, the woman's courtyard was an enormous area, almost the size of a football field. We'll learn that the men's area, or the Israelite courtyard, is far, far smaller. Well, if we take a look back in the fifth chapter of the Rambam Zichus Beis Sabachira, we hear that the proverbial Ezrat Nashama woman's courtyard was Mukefet Gizustra, was surrounded by a parapet or a balcony. And the reason was so that the woman would be able to look from above while the men would be below so that they would not intermingle. And that wasn't even during services. That was during the festivities known as Simchat Beit HaShoeva, the joyous celebrations that punctuated the festival of booths, the holiday we call Sukkot. Now, to be sure, according to many opinions, the reason that this is called Ezrat Nashim is that for the most part, women who entered the Beit HaMikdash would generally be able to see to their business, the reason they had come, in the outer courtyard. Whereas for the most part, but not exclusively, the ordinary Yisraelim or Israelite men would at times, more often than the woman, have to go a step further. It's actually a major leap forward into what's called Ezrat Yisrael. We'll talk about that in tomorrow's episode. So it's called Ezrat Nashim for actually two reasons. Number one, because the woman generally did not go further into the Beit HaMikdash. As a rule, they were able to deal with whatever issues they might have to meaning issues of holiness, observances of mitzvahs that are temple-centric, in the outer courtyard, whereas the men would much more often have to go up the stairs of song and into the actual azara, or temple courtyard. And in addition, this courtyard featured a balcony. And here, 
We're not absolutely sure when that balcony began. It does seem that in the first Beit HaMikdash, the men and the women were separate, but not at different heights. And invariably, this caused intermingling. The Sanhedrin were not happy about that. And so they would artificially create these parapet or this, these uh, enlarged areas called balconies where the women would be looking from above, seeing the festivities down below. In other words, rejoicing on different levels. The women were higher, of course. Now, the interesting thing to note is that from time immemorial, synagogues have been built with an Ezrat Nashim that was invariably elevated, where the women would look down at the men, just the way it was in the Beit HaMikdash. It's fairly recent where we have men and women now on the same level, and oftentimes people dividing a shul down the middle. That is a very recent phenomenon. It is definitely not the way it was in the Beit HaMikdash. At any rate, this is really a bit of a divergence from the subject at hand. Let's go back to the Beit HaMikdash. So what happens here? What is this, this next level of holiness? Rambam tells us that this is Mikudeshet. This is considered a heightened level of sanctity. Now, I want to remind you that when we speak of heightened levels of sanctity, we are not necessarily speaking about prophecy, clairvoyance, or any kind of spiritual inspiration. First and foremost, Judaism is a religion of observance. Mitzvot have to actually be kept. How you feel about it is, well, how you feel about it. That's not really relevant insofar as the actual mitzvah is concerned. Tell me, when you have to feed a poor person, does it matter how you feel about it? Or is the most important thing that the poor person got the meal that he or she needed? I don't know about you, but when, when the baby needs a diaper in the middle of the night, it's not exactly something you do with great love. You may be half asleep and deeply frustrated. The important thing is <laughs> that as a parent, you have a responsibility. And either mom or dad is going to have to go up in the middle of the night and change that diaper. The important thing, the baby's diapers got changed. I could give you so many other examples. The point is, Judaism is about doing the right thing. And the deed is our creed, as our sages put it, hu ha'ikar. The action is of overriding primacy. That doesn't mean that Judaism doesn't believe in inspiration. It doesn't mean we don't yearn to feel a sense of enthusiasm and joy, happiness, and maybe even inspiration when we're performing a mitzvah. That's certainly something we all try to work on. And our, our hope, our aspiration, is that the observances we engage in, the Torah we study, and the prayers that we offer should be done enthusiastically, joyously, passionately, filled with fervor. But again, it's the deed that counts. So in the Beit HaMikdash, when we talk about a higher level of holiness, it doesn't mean experiential. It means that there's going to be more rules and regulations. The crowd will be thinned out. In order to come into that space, you'll have to necessarily be in a higher state of ritual purity, which again, does not speak to the way you feel, and it doesn't mean that you're more inspired or feeling holy. These are halachic facts on the ground. So when we talk about a higher level of holiness, what would that mean? Now, 
I want you to realize we're entering the Beit HaMikdash compound itself. This is not just a temple mount. This is not a, a parapet. This is not a, a, a rampart. This is certainly not a, a, a latticework fence. You're entering into the actual structure. Many believe that the Ezrat Nashim was really elevated to greater prominence during the Second Temple era, but I'm not sure that's true. In fact, I'm pretty certain that the Ezrat Nashim existed in the first Beit HaMikdash well, and I have copious proofs for that. What didn't exist was the four quadrants, the areas that we learned about in the fifth chapter of Hilchus Beis HaBechira, where specific Beis HaMikdash activities were performed. That is patterned after the vision of Ezekiel, which is presaging the third and eternal Beit HaMikdash. But there was definitely an area, a walled-off area, a courtyard area, <laughs> an area in which the Jewish people gathered and participated in major events, like, for example, the, the festivities, the celebrations on Sukkot, and the joy of Hakel, the time when all of Israel would gather together in the Beit HaMikdash to hear the king read from the Sefer Torah. It should, it should really be emphasized that the the steps of song, the Shir HaMalot, which were named so by David HaMelech, by King David, because they would serve the purpose of singing songs in Hashem's house, were located outside of the Azara, of the actual temple courtyard, and in the far edge, or far side, of what we call Ezrat Nashim. So, this Ezrat Nashim, which almost certainly existed during the time of the, of the first Beit HaMikdash, we know with absolute certainty the, the specifics of how it existed during the time of the second Beit HaMikdash. There was an added level of holiness. Now, it seems like you're walking into the Beit HaMikdash. There is a, there's, a, there's an eastern gate. It's not the Shar Nikonar, but it's nonetheless, it's, it's the Golden Gate. You're going in from the eastern side and you're corresponding. Your steps are directed at the Shar Nikonar or Shar HaElyon, the upper gate. And you can actually see straight to the Azara. And straight through the Azara, you can see the door of the Heichal itself. And at times, everything was open. One could look even into the Holy of Holies. So, it sounds pretty biblical. And then, we use biblical language. She'ein tevul yom nichnas l'sham. Now, a tevul yom is a person who was in a state of ritual impurity, immersed in a ritualarium or mikvah, but isn't pure just yet. Because the Torah ordains that a large number of those who would be impure can only become pure after the day in which they've immersed has passed. The sun has to set and the sky has to clear of what we'd call light pollution. And when the sky becomes crystal clear, allowing you to see into the stratosphere, no longer reflecting the rays of the sun as they bounce off the oceanic bodies. At that point, the sky is no longer a bright blue, but it turns a deep, dark color, a darkening color, officially turquoise, and then it gets much, much darker. And at some point, looking into the inky black night and you're seeing the stars. The moon at a certain point becomes visible and then eventually the larger stars become invisible. That's called Tzetakochavim, the emergence of the stars. Do not try this in your local municipality. When you can finally see stars, it's long after Tzetakochavim. And that's because there is so much artificial light pollution that you're not really able to see the stars when they first appear. 
you have to drive a couple of hours to see that. And then as the night gets darker, all of the stars begin to come out. In a city like ours, you can't see that many stars. But you'll be surprised. You drive a couple hours north. Amazing how many millions of stars suddenly appear. So that's called Harev Shemesh, the setting of the sun. The Tavul Yom is the person who has, so to speak, immersed. However, until the sun sets, that individual will be in a state of ritual impurity until the passage of the day. And so Rambam is telling us that this individual who is in a state of ritual impurity by dint of the fact that the day hasn't expired yet is not allowed to enter into the Ezrat Nashim. Sounds very biblical. <laughs> He's not allowed to go. Rambam says, just between us, this prohibition, biblical as it may sound and biblical as it may feel, you're walking into the base of Migdash. Tvul Yom is a biblical terminology. This prohibition is of rabbinic ordination. In other words, it's another artificial level of sanctity created by the Sanhedrin or the rabbis. Now, when I say artificial, I don't mean something which is, God forbid, fake or disingenuous. It's just not biblical. It's not organic. It's not natural. The Torah didn't ordain this. What the Torah did ordain is that we revere the Beis Hamikdash, that we look at the Beis Hamikdash with a sense of absolute awe. And what our sages understood is that if there would be layers of holiness and sanctity, as we would move through those layers, and at each point, more of the local population, so to speak, has to shrink back. Less of the people are actually allowed to proceed forward. It gives you a sense of awesomeness. It makes you aware of what a special place you're entering, and it serves to increase our awe and our respect, which is a biblical mitzvah. So the rationale of these rabbinically created scrimmages of sanctity was the fulfillment of the biblical mitzvah of Yirah, of awe and reverence for the Beis HaMikdash. Now it sounds really biblical, but the Rambam says it can't be. Because he says, Min HaTorah, biblically speaking, Mutar Tevul Yom The Tevul Yom may enter the scrimmage of the Levite. Let me remind you. And we talked about this several episodes ago. Biblically, we don't find a description of Jerusalem there is no identifying of a Beit HaMikdash. God does say in his Torah, I will show you the place. But the mountain isn't named, at least not as the mountain where the Beit HaMikdash will stand. The only time we hear about this mountain is when Isaac is brought as a putative offering by Abraham, after which God says, take it down now. We know that this is the very same mountain that Jacob lied down to sleep and where he saw his extraordinary vision of Ufaratzta, this amazing sweeping panoramic vision of angels going up the ladder and coming down the ladder and the fortunes of the Jewish people are encapsulated in that powerful burst of growth called Ufaratzta. But we don't know that this is the Beit HaMikdash. Yes, Jacob does say, Ein zek, im This seems to be the very house of God. It must be. But we didn't know where that was. And when the Jewish people first came to the land of Israel, for centuries, it was a mystery. When God finally does tell us, we need to know how we situate things. 
where are the scrimmages or what or how many scrimmages of holiness are there? Well, the only origin we have for halachot or mitzvot like that is to take a look at the original house of God, the traveling tabernacle that was there with the Jewish people in the Sinai Desert. And there we find there was Machne Yisrael, the camp of Israel, correspondingly, Jerusalem is considered to be the holy city. That's biblical. The next set is the Har Habayit. That represents the Levite camp, the camp where Moses, Aaron, and the Levite clan would, would, would so to speak, camp around the Mishkan. Now, we know this is the Harabayat. Chel is an artificial line. There's no real biblical line that says, after Harabayat, another line of scrimmage. And you know what? The Ezrat Nashim, despite the fact that it's part of the Beit HaMikdash compound, and if you would look at it on the outside, it looks it's the same building. It's one massive palatial area. True. And yet... Halachically, we don't actually cross from the Levite camp, which is represented by Har HaMoriah or Temple Mount, until we enter the Azara itself. As such, the Ezrat Nashim is something that's created by the rabbis or Sanhedrin. Its sanctity is therefore not biblical. And the Ramam says we can see this because a Tomei Mace or Tomei even somebody who is defiled by the very dead, which is a very severe form of ritual impurity, we learned about this a couple of days ago, Nichnasli Ezrat HaNashim is allowed to go into the Ezrat HaNashim. Why? It corresponds to Machna Leviyah. In the camp of the Levites, we had the coffin of Yosef and the undertakers, those who carried that coffin. And therefore, Eino Chayav Chatas. There is no obligation to bring a sin offering, even if somebody would have done this inadvertently. Now, when you violate a biblical commandment inadvertently, there's a special sin offering that has to be brought so you can obtain pardon and have your soul cleansed from the toxins that absorbed by behaving inappropriately. The very fact that there is no consequence here speaks volumes. It tells us that this is only a line of scrimmage that was created by the sages, by the Sanhedrin. It's a rabbinic form of holiness in order to increase our awe and our trepidation at the approach of the Beis HaMikdash. Now, this idea of the Ezrat Nashim, it, it, you know, it's a, without a question a very holy place. And it wasn't a place where people, if you will, loitered or hung out. You didn't go to the Ezrat Nashim unless you had a good reason to be there. There's no doubt about that. But at the same time, halachically, from a biblical perspective, despite the fact that it seems to be part of the compound, it was on the same level of sanctity as the rest of the Har Habayit. So, as we move through our ten levels of holiness, we now have gone from the land of Israel to the holy cities, to the holiest of cities, Jerusalem. We've entered the Har Habayit, gone past the line of the rampart or Chel, and now we're in the outer courtyard of the Beis HaMikdash, guess what comes next? Finally, we've arrived at the proverbial golden gates. We'll be ascending the stairs of song, the Shir HaMalot, and in our next episode, we'll be entering the Azara, the courtyard itself. May Hashem help us that from our study of the Beis HaMikdash that we should merit to be participating in the Beis HaMikdash's building in a spiritual and proverbial sense, and that this accelerate the process of universal redemption, that it hasten 
the arrival of the Beis HaMikdash, which Hashem is building for us in heaven. And may we meet in the Beit HaMikdash HaShlishi, b'mheira ubi ameno, speedily, and in our days. Amen. If you enjoyed this little presentation on the Beit HaMikdash, please take the time to share it. I'd appreciate it if you could hit like. And of course, if you aren't yet subscribed, please do so and take the time to enable notifications. YouTube.com forward slash Shabbat Mendel Kaplan. Have a beautiful day. Thanks for joining me.